If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. everybody welcome back to la not so confidential it feels like it feels like it's been forever right because we split the last episode into two so we're off our regular schedule we are off so welcome back and it's may freaking first like what is that about (laughs) there's also a new meme it's no longer the justin timberlake nope it's gonna be may what is it what is it well, they have one that's Alphaba from Wicked because her the end of her big number is May instead of me. Of course, and then, you would know. Of that. course, I would know the Broadway one. But there's a which was the other one? There's a Britney Spears one now. That... Yes. <laughs> was that from Toxic? Um. Oops, I did it again. Oops, I did it again. Well, that makes sense. Just typically May. All right. <laughs> that's all the singing you will ever ever get out of this one so i don't know i think a couple of drinks we could probably get you to loosen up i don't know i only do karaoke in other states um but i will not be doing it at crime con so nobody liquor me up enough to do it in austin that's a good intro tell about crime con (laughs) crime con's coming up just like five weeks away uh so Unfortunately, our beloved Dr. Scott will not be there. Uh, I will not. You are making very responsible decisions to spend your vacation time seeing family that you haven't seen yeah. in a long time. I'm, I mean, seriously, I mean, any chance to hang out with you is always a pleasure. And, you know, and our best, our best podcast friends that we met a couple of years ago at True Crime Podcast Festival, and then the amazing, amazing and talented Jason Usery, who I, we've never met in person, like feel yeah. like we have. I feel like I've known him for years. And we've never been in person, but mm-hmm. I can't do it. I mean, I haven't seen my family. It'll be over a year and a half by the time I reconnect, and I'm going to take a good two weeks off and go and, and visit all my my peeps in Atlanta and Alabama. Awesome. That's great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Of course, I wish I was going to my first one with you arm in arm, but I feel like this is going to be kind of a little mini version, a little more relaxed version, just because everyone's a little bit hesitant and wondering what it's going to be like post-COVID. Are we allowed to say post-COVID yet? I guess if we're getting together in some ways, right? Um, Yeah. Looking forward to it. Just hanging out, seeing everybody. Being an attendee, soaking it up. I am 
going to put a couple new merch designs up on our Tee Public store. Just if people want like fun kind of true crime or psychology related t-shirts to wear around, you know, I'm already doing my packing list. So I'm like, oh, I have my Voices for Justice tank top that says Ted Bundy was not hot that I'm going to wear by the pool. And (laughs) what else can I bring? Planning my outfits five weeks ahead. That's me. That's what I do. That's great. I I love it. Other people might want a couple of fun things to wear, not necessarily just plastered with LA Not So Confidential, but with just some some snarky or witty sayings. Well, I like also, I mean, this was the thing that I'm going to miss about not being there with you is that it would be nice to go to a conference that we're not presenting at and have a booth at. I mean, like it was great at True Crime Podcast Festival to have our own booth, but it was also our first festival to go to together. And we were amped beyond amped and had a great time, but also exhausted at the end of the weekend where this would be a chance since, you know, we don't have a booth at CrimeCon to walk around and be part of the crowd, which would be great. So I'm really looking forward to hearing how it goes for you. Yeah, definitely. Anything else before we get started into our topic today? I don't think so. I would say this, like everybody's been asking for this topic for quite a while. Yes. We've gotten multiple emails, multiple uh, DMs on Instagram and Facebook about doing this. We were like, we'll get to it. I promise you, we'll get to it. Yeah, we'll finally tackle it at some point. Um, And we're talking about Munchausen syndrome today. We're going to break that term down a little bit. Well, actually a lot of it, just where it comes from, what it actually is whether or not it's an actual diagnosis like we've had with some other concepts before, like Stockholm Syndrome. Again, one of those things that everyone feels like they know and they know it when they hear it and what that means. But in the psychological world, especially forensic psychology, when you're talking about getting to a courtroom, what does that look like? What does that mean? And what do we actually call it? Which is, we'll travel back to that point right there at the end of the episode when we talk about the legal ramifications of... You know, an expert can't just go into a court as an expert or any kind of putting any kind of uh, support in for defense or prosecution without there being sort of stats behind it. And when something like this happens, like you were talking about, when a word becomes part of the common vernacular and people just start using it and it takes on a life of its own, like Stockholm, then there are great things in a way that like gets the knowledge out there. But then the downside is like, whoa, 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 people are having their own uh, definitions of it. And a lot of times those can be incorrect or incomplete. Yeah. So one of my major resources today is going to be from a leading forensic psychologist who does assessments and testifies in court cases having to do with Munchausen by proxy. And that's Dr. Michael Boots. He is out of Montana, I believe. I I have not read it, but I'm sure it's a wonderful book because I did a training with him a couple weeks ago that was so in-depth and so over my head. And it was only an hour long. I remember telling Scott, I was like, oh my God, this is so much to digest in an area that's not my area of expertise. Right, right. And... His book is called Parental Alienation and Factitious Disorder by Proxy Beyond the DSM-5 Interrelated Multidimensional Diagnoses. Um, I'm sure it's a pleasure to read, but this is just, this is an area that if anything, I realized not just any forensic psychologist can go into a courtroom and take a case on this. I mean, no, and nor should they. 
No, absolutely not. But this is certainly a really interesting niche area where you have to really know your stuff. It's not enough to just have a basic understanding and foundation of even just abnormal psychology. Because we're talking about you know the family dynamics, which is your area, forensically, medical systems. It's, it's a lot. So I, I want to say here, trigger warnings are really going to revolve around different types of child abuse, not so much a ton of physical or any sexual abuse that we're going to talk about today, but really terms of neglect and manipulation, which has really horrific results, but also violent homicide because of we're going to be talking about uh, a case that ends that way. I think there's anything else on your end. Yeah, I was going to say, I think one of the important takeaways from today's is that we really put some great bullet points together from three different research articles about what to recognize. And the reason I say this is that the world and children can benefit from people being aware of what's going on around them. And there are a couple of things where if you see, I mean, this just sounds like an awful thing to sit up and think. Thank goodness this is a very, actually pretty rare phenomenon. But like myself and yourself as a mandated reporter, I would want other people to be able to go, wait, these things are not adding up. And to be able to just call law enforcement or make a report to someone who is a mandated reporter. Um, And I think that that's important because it clarified it for me in doing this research. And I feel like I'm coming out of this with a better sense. And I can apply it to my day-to-day work, which is great. I want to give a shout out to Sir Samuel Roy Meadow. And he is a retired British pediatrician who first wrote about Munchausen by proxy in 1977 and has done a follow-up article that we'll be pulling heavily from today about Munchausen in an even more rare form, which is that when it presents in men, a rare, it's a rare disorder and even more rare for men and actually in some ways more dangerous. Wow. Well, thank you for finding that because I kind of tasked you with, hey, I wonder if men are engaging in this as much and you found a wealth of information on it. So but I'm so glad you did that because I fell right into that trope of not right. rec- not even thinking about it, not even thinking about it, because right. every time it's portrayed in media, it's always portrayed as, you know, this crazy mom who does this. Yep. yep. I Yeah, it's it's really one of those things that especially when you talk about the Gypsy Rose case, like how many parts of the system failed her. And I think being able to recognize, like you were saying, what are the things to look for, but also not falling into some of these tropes. It it can be overlooked in so many different ways. And that's obviously the conundrum with this because the perpetrators are really good at pulling the wool over people's eyes, even medical professionals. But it it almost to me is like when ADHD doesn't get diagnosed in girls because it just looks different. So they get overlooked because everyone thinks of a hyperactive boy in their mind. So anyway, I digress. We're jumping into it right now. Great example. (laughs) So... Munchausen is a very strange name. I definitely wanted to know where the heck did this come from? Who was Mr. Munchausen and Mr. why Munchausen. was was he making people in his life sick? What was going on? <laughs> but not the case. The syndrome was actually named after Baron von Munchausen, 
a fictional German nobleman who became famous as a narrator of false and exaggerated exploits. So he, his character was actually based on a real baron named Carl Frederick Hieronymus. And in 1760, uh, he became somewhat of a minor celebrity in the German aristocratic circles for telling really tall tales when he was in the military. And this, this writing, this story about him using this fictional character, Baron von Munchausen, was called Baron Munchausen's narrative of his marvelous travels and campaigns in Russia. So interesting because we have this syndrome now that is not even named after a real person that suffered from this, which is usually how we get names or it's the person who discovered it, right? They name it after themselves. But this has this fictional piece to it. And in 1951, Richard Asher was the first to describe a pattern of self-harm wherein individuals fabricated histories, signs, symptoms of illness in themselves. And he was looking at this set of symptoms and gave it the name Munchausen syndrome because he remembered this story. So the story was originally written in the 1700s. And then with Asher's article that came out in The Lancet, it was kind of out there and people started to call it by Munchausen syndrome. There was a lot of controversy about the name though, because it is based on a very fictional person based on a real person, but essentially based on a fictional character. And that character did not have the disorder. So there's a controversy because of the origins of the name. However, like you said before, it did bring attention to it. So at least people were starting to be inquisitive about what this was and maybe pay more attention to where then victims were getting help that they needed. Well, it also it's a makes sense that like you would use a character who represents you know telling very tall tales. I kind of like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great. I mean, maybe we could do a whole episode on psychological disorders that are based on you know fictional characters. I know there's like several of them. This is not the only one. We should come back around to that sometime. Well, and and we see it a lot with like Greek mythology. I mean, you're always narcissistic personality disorder. Exactly. Exactly. So I kind of like that there's this caricature of somebody that you can think of like, oh, okay, those were his characteristics or those were her characteristics. It would be a really good way to actually memorize some of this stuff. (laughs) Right. It's a heuristic of its own. Yes, absolutely. so, but Munchausen syndrome, and we'll, we're going to get into just a moment, like breaking down what this actually looks like in the DSM, but Munchausen syndrome was finally recognized in 1980 in the third edition of the DSM under the heading of factitious disorder. But if you look at the newest DM, DSM, the DSM-5 does not have it in there. So it was there in the 80s, at least in parentheses, at least somewhere under this heading. So it, it, I think it's interesting to look at how it sort of creeped its way in to even the psychiatric vernacular. And it is still used very much in, in the literature, in academia, and is basically interchangeable for the factitious disorder, but then is still not a formal diagnosis. But remember, we're talking about two different things here. We're talking about Munchausen's and Munchausen's by proxy. Correct. So, right. So those we got to make sure people understand that yes. those two different things. For sure. So Munchausen syndrome 
aka factitious disorder, these fall underneath the umbrella of somatoform disorders. So somatoform, it's a mental health condition that causes the individual to experience physical bodily symptoms in response to psychological distress. So I'm sure people are familiar with the term psychosomatic. And somatoform disorders, not to get too deep into it, but are basically broken off into categories, involuntary and voluntary. So involuntary is when they would present with physical symptoms, neurological symptoms, or preoccupied with symptoms that they think that they have, but it's unconscious. They are, they truly believe that they are presenting with these symptoms. And sometimes they are occurring without any medical explanation. So it could be induced by uh, psychological distress, and now it's coming out, manifesting in the body, but there's no medical explanation. So it's almost like a, a severe anxiety disorder. It starts out as a severe anxiety disorder or a depressive disorder, and then it sort of metastasizes into somatoform where you're actually feeling it in your body, and then you're so ruminating on the potential for these alleged symptoms that you then create them in your body. Yes, yes, and that does happen. So then under the voluntary category, so this means it is conscious. The person is having a cognitive process about it. The person shows up with some sort of physical, physiological symptoms and or is telling the doctors that they have these symptoms. And it's for one of two reasons. One, the person wants secondary gain. And this is what we call malingering. So this malingering is actually not a mental disorder. It's a focus, what we call a focus of clinical attention when we're sort of looking at a treatment plan for someone. And malingers will engage in many of the same activities as people with factitious disorder. For instance, they exaggerate or make up symptoms of an illness, uh, either physical or psychiatric, but they're doing it for some sort of personal gain. So it could be... I'm sure you saw this a lot of the time in the prisons. I know we tested for malingering all the time with the uh, criminal parolee population, are they trying to get out of something by faking a disorder or an illness, essentially? It could also be for some other personal or secondary gain, maybe monetary. Um, but generally, they're, they're trying to get out of something, I think is a good way to say it. So you have the malingerers under voluntary. They know what they're doing. And you also have the fictitious disorder. You have the person that wants to play the sick role either themselves or for someone else, the by proxy. So the proxy is usually a child, but usually another family member. It can even be a pet at times. But just the... the We'll get into some other definitions, but the, the bare bones of it is that they want to play this sick role. And that you'll see that in the literature time and time again under, you know, sort of quotes, the sick role. So whatever that means... We're going to get into like, does it mean attention seeking? Does it mean relationships with medical staff? But these are, it, it's not for secondary gain. So that's why there's a differentiation between the malingerers and the Munchausen or Munchausen by proxy disorder, excuse me, syndrome. And we'll, we're going to dive in a little deeper here. So we're talking about fictitious disorder. It can be imposed on the self, like I said. And then, of course, what people are more familiar with is 
it might be factitious order, factitious disorder imposed on another. So the perpetrator in either scenario is given the diagnosis. If it's by proxy and there's a victim, it's we're not we're not saying that the victim has this. It's solely on the perpetrator of the feigned illness. However, the victim, the 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 proxy may believe that they are sick because they've been told they are sick Absolutely. and they've been subject to medications, medical procedures, surgeries, and on and on and on. Yes. So a nice, instead of going through the DSM criteria, I thought a nice definition according to the Mayo Clinic is this. Factitious disorder is a serious mental disorder in which someone deceives others by appearing sick, by purposely getting sick, or by self-injury. Factitious disorder also can happen when family members or caregivers falsely present others, such as children, as being ill, injured, or impaired. So what if, since you've given such a clear definition there, let's use the example that we hear in the news a lot of an individual not working via proxy, but an individual who pretends to have cancer and she shaves her head and she moves towns every couple of years Mm -hmm. and starts GoFundMe pages. She's going in for secondary gain of making money. So that would be malingering instead of factitious, right? Am I understanding that correctly? I I think you would really need to do a deep assessment with somebody like that if you if you thought it important enough to label them for whatever okay. reason. Okay. I after doing this episode research, I truly think people can be diagnosed with both. Uh, well, okay, so one one I already said malingering is not an actual diagnosis. It's an area of clinical attention to focus on. Right. Oh, right. Okay. Right. Factitious disorder is a diagnosis. I think there can be both. I think people can be wanting to play the sick role for the attention. But I think with that often comes a lot of financial gain. And in and we'll we'll see that in Gypsy Rose's case. So I, I do think that I my determination is that I would be comfortable actually putting both of those in a treatment plan and saying that they were both both of those need to be addressed. Okay. The the literature has also indicated that the perpetrator engages in a very specific relationship with medical providers in which the attention seeking behavior may be more evident than the adoption of this sick role. So it's what they're talking about here in the literature is that the drive to feign these symptoms is for this pseudo relationship that they start to build with specific doctors, with entire systems, with feeling like knowledgeable about it, of being able to get one over on these really smart doctors. I think yeah. that's, when we when we talk about diagnoses later, I think that is really treading into sort of dark triad area for me. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. But the idea so, that you're, you're having these parasocial relationships, you're creating a parasocial relationship with someone that's not truly your intimate, but you have a relationship with them for the purposes of diagnosis and treatment and continuity of care. Yeah. 
And but you but you get to be in control because you're controlling the narrative because the medica the medical staff is just there to try and do their job. Right. Right. Very interesting. Cause I feel like that definitely would be overlap into other acts what we used to call access to personality disorders. Definitely. I, I get flavors of all of that. So you can see, I mean, there's a very fine line here between or I don't know if it's a fine line or that there really has to be a distinction made between this being a mental health disorder and or is it a crime you know is there that secondary gain there is there does it cross the line into criminal is it fraud by trickery um there's a lot of avenues this goes down and why there's so much crossover in forensic psych so conservative researchers in this area actually believe that the term should be reserved for the really complex abuse that results okay when an adult perpetrator actively deceives medical providers in order to gain more of the emotional gratification. So again, they're sort of putting the the definition clear cut of malingering to the side of this, but it, they say that it really is difficult to assess for because it's a complex maltreatment interaction dynamic between the parent or caretaker and the child, if it's by proxy, and then the medical staff. So there's kind of this trifecta of all these components in place, especially when it's by proxy. That's fascinating because then it seems like to me that it's also utilizing or integrating a sense of control. This is a way I'm going to create a false narrative or a fantasy narrative. And I'm it's magical thinking. I'm the I'm right. the martyr victim hero but I'm going to control. It's like a, a pick your own adventure in a way. Oh my God. Yeah, I, exactly. And again, like more flavors of con men and what we talked about in that yes. episode were really coming up here, especially when I think of, oh my God, it just sounds so exhausting to keep this up. Right? I know. I feel like I say that all the time about criminal behavior, but this really feels exhausting. It would consume your life. It is your job to do this. Well, if you don't have any other identity, right? Except that it's like you, that's you are, you know, that's a very one dimensional way to inhabit an identity. And once again, as we know, with the majority of personality disorders that emerge, there's usually a traumatic background. So mm -hmm. this would be one way of turning your back on the reality of your traumatic past and right. creating this magical reality where. You're the martyr hero victim interacting with being being a caregiver and interacting with the medical community. Fascinating yeah. stuff. Yeah. So it, this certainly, as you can tell, treads into the realm of child abuse. It, you know, it's very interesting. We've also had so many requests to talk about sort of traditional physical child abuse and what makes somebody do that. And I don't know, this might be the closest I can get to it. I don't know if yeah. I'm ready to tackle that topic, but. Well, we don't, we don't talk about that a lot. I think that given the breadth of subject matter that we've covered in 70 episodes, mm -hmm. we come, we may give the impression that we're, you know, we can really handle everything. Which, I mean, for the most part, we, we've we seen a lot of rough stuff and we can sure. talk about it. But I think this is something that you and I share is maybe not exactly the same thing because certainly your being a parent would inform you differently. But I get really triggered with child stuff. 
like yeah. really, really triggered by it. Like, like enraged mm-hmm. that someone would take advantage of a child in this way. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's not, I, I guess I just, that's why I don't really, I didn't do a specialty in working with kids. And I know social workers and psych nurses and psychologists that are phenomenally talented in working in that area. And they see horrific stuff all the time and their resilience is, is wonderful and amazing and yeah, super heroic. And I don't have it. Me uh, what about you? Well, and that that's what I always say is because, you know, I'm sure you got this in the year that you worked with sex offenders. But I mean, the the entire time that I was doing that, I mean, people would be like, how can you do that? And I just say, I don't know, but I can. But I could not work with victims of sexual abuse, you know, child, like I, I, we all have our, our area that we can handle. We can compartmentalize in a healthy way. And I have so much comfort in the fact that there is somebody made to do every type of work, because then I know that's being covered by someone who's wonderful. Exactly. And that's how I sort of carve out my little niche in the world. And, um, you know, there are just some areas that I don't want to know about. I don't want to go to, but I totally understand the, the curiosity behind it because it is so opposite of what you think a parent should do yes. and think and feel. And so people are like, please tell us about it. Help me understand this. But anyway, so this Munchausen's fictitious disorder, whatever you guys want to call it, because we're going to go back and forth today, um, is definitely related to child abuse. The quote-unquote presented symptoms of illness or disabilities of these children can be mild or they can be all the way up to severe. And the person can lie about symptoms that they're presenting with by many different ways. I mean, obviously verbally just lying about it, but they tamper with medical tests. They do something that causes the symptoms. Maybe they're inducing medication or a type of poison or something that the body is going to react to to try and illustrate that this is really happening. So when medical staff examines this person, they do actually see something. And they even encourage high-risk procedures or surgeries in their tactics of feigning these symptoms. So you know what the most common one is? Nope. I don't. Feeding tubes in the stomach. Oh God, it's so invasive. I I know. That's okay. So this is the this is probably as gross out as I'm gonna get. It that was the thing that surprised me. I did not realize it's feeding tubes are the most common surgeries that the perpetrators induce on their children and all i could think of was of course because it's another level of control ultimate i'm gonna i'm gonna be completely in control of what of what kind of nutrients go in and out of my child and i have to be the one to feed you right probably i'm going to make the food oh god this is terrible terrible but you pinpointed it all about control and Again, you know, I just want to reiterate that this is not about faking an illness for some practical benefit. So I I think we've hit that home enough. But nearly all abusers in documented cases of Munchausen by proxy are women. About 95% of the time, it's the mother of the person that they're abusing. That's according to a 2017 issue of Child Abuse and Neglect. 
that had a study looking at who are the perpetrators. And also, you know, thinking about the victim, while it's conceptually possible that Munchausen syndrome by proxy could involve another adult, the literature suggests that the proxy is almost always a child. So that it would be really interesting to hear cases where it was another adult. I wonder if it has to be like more vulnerable populations, if it's you know elderly or disabled already, because then there's more of that sense of control if the person is taking care of them. Right. Although Munchausen syndrome by proxy abuse is associated with this huge gender disparity that we just named, when it's perpetrated by males, it can look very different behaviorally. And, and Scott is going to get into that in a little bit in some great detail. But it is possible that emphasis in the published reports on perpetrators being the child's mother may have dissuaded from some identifying male perpetrators. Just, just like we were talking tracks. about, yeah. right? Yeah. So even researchers are like, hey, guys... Don't let this fool you. Don't let it slip through the cracks because it does happen. It's just going to look different. Perpetrators usually have a history of factitious disorder on their self. So I imagine before they have children to be able to do it by proxy, this drive is still there, this attention-seeking still there. And who do they have? They have themselves, right? So prior to having a victim that they can now not undergo all of this medical <laughs> procedures and attention um, on their own to have, they, it, they will present with this on their own. Um, you can also see Munchausen syndrome disorder come up in court cases involving insurance fraud. Again, it's going to take a good assessment uh, to really rule out what is going on here. But I think because it's such a generalized term that people start throwing it around and saying, oh, what is this? Again, if it's for the purposes of insurance fraud, then it's more likely something like malingering and it's criminal or medical malpractice. So you can imagine that if somebody is suffering from this disorder, they don't like what the doctors are saying because it doesn't match up with what they want the doctors to say. I could see them going so far as to sue the doctor for medical malpractice to prove their point. So it'd be really interesting how it plays in that like civil sort of realm too. Yeah. I mean, it also, that would be a, a perfect example of someone who goes so far into their own belief system that they can compartmentalize what their abusive and dangerous actions are. Yes. To the point where I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to risk the chance of this litigation and discovery and investigation into everything I've done and my entire history and my child's history. But I'm not, I'm just going to put it over here on a, on a cupboard. I'm not going to think about what I've done to create this. Well, and I think, I don't know if that happens very often. I would guess no, because once you start entering that court system for things, then everything can be discovery. Everything right. can be brought out. And it's like, I don't know, your medical records are going to be subpoenaed. Are they going to match up? How many doctors have you taken your daughter to, Miss Smith? You know, and Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, a lot can be discovered once you step into the realm of court, but they might not know that. And they might, you know, try to go down that road to prove a point. 
and it end up biting them. But I want to talk about just how common the syndrome is. It really is relatively rare. So in general medicine, about 1% of patients meet the criteria for Munchausen by proxy. But there really aren't any reliable statistics because the people who might be diagnosed with the disorder, again, it's one of those things. I should put this on a t-shirt. We don't know what we don't know. (laughs) We can't study what we don't know or what is slipping through the cracks or under the radar. So that's a lot to put on a (laughs) t-shirt. Oh, no, you should just, should have I have a just t- stopped it. <laughs> you should have a t-shirt that says I might have Munchausen's. Oh my God. <laughs> There's so many things I would want to put on a t-shirt, but yeah. completely inappropriate. We'll get yelled at by somebody. <laughs> oh yes. That's what we have found that in our roles as Z-list celebrities. <laughs> always going to piss somebody off, right? <laughs> Yes. Hey, you know what? At least we didn't pull a Joe Rogan and tell people not to vaccinate. Yeah, that's what I want to do when I have that many listeners is have that much influence. Right. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Dodged a bullet there on our part. I think our listeners are too smart for that anyway. So good. Completely. Completely. Uh, So published reports suggest that two thirds of patients with Munchausen syndrome are male. Whereas the more common non-Munchausen forms of factitious physical disorders, females outnumber males by three to one. So that might be some of the more somatoform disorders that we were talking about. There's a, there's a ton of other disorders that fall under that big umbrella of somatoform. Um, but factitious disorder, like I said, it could be physical, neurological, or just like you were talking about, the anxiety of worrying about all of these symptoms. In the past, men with Munchausen syndrome have been considered a danger to themselves, but not to others. So it sounds like they are a little bit more hardcore with the uh, feigning illnesses or injuries to where it's really worrying people that they're truly a danger to themselves. Yeah, it's a whole different thing, including some commonality with what we've spoken about in the past about the disparity between how men and women are adjudicated and sentenced for the same kind of crimes. Mm, Interesting. So how the medical system might be looking at them. Yep. Interesting. But also there's crossover that I'm just thinking about right now with self-harm behaviors and suicidal uh, behaviors and actions that men can take that to a more lethal level or more serious level when women might not. So that's interesting, this crossover here. Um, so I'm going to go through just a couple of examples. I think this is, you know, might be an area that we're kind of talking about as far as trigger warning and um, child abuse examples. But these are examples discovered by social workers and other mental health prof- providers. So it could be a mother smothering her baby to stop the child from breathing. We talked about this a lot in our killer nurses episodes, smothering and them reviving them was something that we saw in that phenomenon too. A mother inducing herself to vomit and then pouring it on her child so it looks like the child has vomited. And a mother injecting her baby with its own fecal matter, which then ends up resulting in an E. coli infection. So once again, I just have to say that like, this is the kind of thing that triggers me. Like, not that I can say I understand 
parent hitting their child. I have a huge problem with that across the board. But this is so much more like it's covert violence. Yes. You know, it's not the most in-your-face backhanded slap, which is horrific, but it's so real that it's easier to process. Whereas something like this, like the planning that has to go into inducing yourself to vomit or inducing fecal matter into a, a, a pick line or something. It's just right. a whole different level of body horror that I think is when it's triggering me. Yeah. Yeah. I think you nailed it. It's and, and with these that I'm the examples that I just gave, you think of how young and vulnerable these children are because they're not even aware of what these actions are, right? I mean, there's certain age to where a child is going to be aware of what the parent is doing with any one of these. So it's the most vulnerable. It's so sad. Um, and then you think about when the child does get older, the manipulation, the line, like what a mind fuck it is really for the parent to start telling them that they're sick and going to other means like poisoning them or using medication that they shouldn't be taking to make these symptoms be real. Once again, keeping those roles very delineated. I am the one in power. I am infantilizing my child to keep them in a submissive if they're drugged or they're, you know, um, hurting all the time from all of this manipulation, then they're not going to have the energy to go through the normal developmental and individuation process where they become their own person, which we find out in the case of Gypsy Rose, you know, we have some real thoughts about that too. So we'll we'll probably dive into that later about what happened in that particular uh, story. But I did want to talk about what to look for in a potential perpetrator. Did you cover what you wanted? Yeah, I'm points? good. Okay. Let's move on to that. So yeah, the potential perpetrators is like, like you said, it is majority of the time, it is a biological mother or someone who is inhabiting the mother role. Sometimes it has happened in foster families. They have boiled it down to the ages generally between the age of 20 and 40. Sometimes it's a person with a background in healthcare. So maybe not a full blown nurse, but has been like a nurse's assistant or a licensed vocational nurse. They present as incredibly friendly and cooperative with other healthcare providers. They work very hard to maintain good relationships with those healthcare providers. And they are always super concerned about their child's health. You know, that's what makes it difficult is what parent is not going to be super concerned about their child's health. Yeah. If if I so, were a doctor, I would want to see a parent very invested in their child's health. Right. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. So here's where it gets a little awry, though, is they seem to be really interested and knowledgeable about medical details, like asking all these questions, but they also have a certain level of quote unquote expertise about what's going on, which look, if you've got a child with a legitimate chronic illness, of course, you're going to be an expert by the time you've been dealing with it for a couple of years. I get it. But like you were saying, they tend to enjoy the attention from healthcare professionals. They're very comfortable in the hospital environment and they have a huge reaction, usually anger, if doctors tell them that nothing is wrong. Wow. So, yeah. and as they have done more deeper dives into the background of men and women who have been accused of these crimes or adjudicated for these crimes, 
they have found commonality and that they have problems with identity and self-esteem. So one of the things when you have a particularly low level of self-esteem, a very toxic way to cover up and defend against your lack of internal self is to present with a veneer that is a lot bigger. So you create Mm -hmm. sort of an archetype of who you're going to be expansive, grandiose, super friendly, super helpful, you know, and it's not there in reality. It's a veneer to cover up your own internal deficits. So most likely in men and women, the perpetrator has also at some point suffered from their own factitious disorder and were going through the motions of faking illnesses for getting attention before they were able to find a way to put that and project that onto their child. You know so, what I find the most interesting is is the anger reaction. Right. Because I would think, you know, there might be some level of anger, but it's more frustration if doctors weren't in, unable to figure something out or confusion, right? Like, how is this possible because of what, you know, I'm experiencing, what I'm seeking? But I think when a doctor gets to a point where they're telling someone definitively nothing is wrong, (laughs) you know, the anger is really telling in this. Well, look, and let me play devil's advocate on that because I'm always talking about, I'm always complaining about things. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, I had a like uh, five years ago this summer, I was hiking with my family in the Smokies and I managed to take my pack off halfway up the mountain to take a break and I tore a muscle in my torso. And it was a very weird, bizarre area on my rib and unbelievable pain. Like the worst pain I've ever been in. Thought they were going to have to fly me out off the mountain. What the hell was in that backpack? Just No, just the basics. (laughs) It's like, I mean, it was, but it was just weird the way I wrenched it. It was one of those things where you move wrong. And and I had that experience with the doctor who said, there's nothing wrong with you. It's like, Mm -hmm. just put a cool compress on it. It's fine. And here it is five years later. And now I have scar tissue all around my ribs that needs to be broken up with the most painful procedure you've ever thought of. But like, I, so I get it that like there are legitimate times where you can be really frustrated when a medical professional is not acknowledging what's happening to you. But in this sense, this is an example where here I am as a parent, I am convinced and I have convinced myself and I have convinced my child that they are a victim of this chronic condition. You're not, I'm not going to let you burst my bubble. Right. And I'm going to get angry at you because you're trying to burst my bubble, you know? Right, because it's not going the way they want. Well, exactly. I think that's the last time you should take all of your hair care and all of your skincare products with you on a freaking hike. I to the need all of them. If I did not take my six layers of hair and skincare, <laughs> what would I, I couldn't look Esther Hilton in the face? I could not look Esther in the face. Well, I guess it's worth the muscle tears then. It is. Proceed. Esther, you're, you're worth the pain. <laughs> Beauty is pain. So signs of Munchausen by proxy include um, more signs to look for, but maybe harder to differentiate when you're looking at someone in this role is that they are inhabiting the martyr victim hero role. They're generally very charming and convincing. They're able to manipulate doctors by creating these symptoms in their children, and they are constantly changing medical providers. So we're talking 
people going from county to county because our medical systems in the U.S. do not talk with each other easily. On one hand, we have a really great protection of confidentiality. On the other hand, it's really easy for people to get away with doing this and just picking up and moving, which is also another symptom. If the parent is picking up and moving constantly, if they're never in one place for really more than about 18 months tops at a time, the oh, child... Yeah, that's a red flag for a lot of things. For a I'm lot sure, of things, right? That makes sense. Maybe they're a spy. Um, a child who's hospitalized with unusual and unexplained symptoms that seem to go away, of course, when the caregiver is not there. Symptoms that don't match the child's test results. Um, symptoms that will get worse at home but improve as long as the child's under medical care away from the parent or under the watch of doctors if the parent is there. Drugs or chemicals in the child's blood or urine. That's always a big get- getaway as long. Sure. Yeah. Let me say it again. <clears throat> Drugs Not a getaway. And- <laughs> right. Drugs or chemicals in the child's blood or urine. That's a big giveaway because, of course... Anything that is taken into your body is processed into different chemicals. So when people see, like, why is this, you know, what is that that chemical polyethyl glycol that's in, they mix it in Gator, it's basically antifreeze. That's a big oh, one on forensics awesome. files. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, Great. why is, why does this child have antifreeze in their blood? And then mom's over there looking, oh, I have no idea. Siblings who die under strange circumstances is a huge red flag. Now, okay. So meaning... That multiple children are being the victims of Munchausen by proxy? I don't think that's as common, but it's something definitely to look for because I want to be careful there because there have been, and we won't talk about it today, but it's in some of our show notes, is that there have been cases where the, the parents have gotten in trouble and gone through legal procedures and court procedures for Munchausen and for abusing their children. Um, and there have been multiple SIDS deaths, you know, sudden infant death later only to find that like those families had genetic markers for all of these things that will cause those things to happen. I think we talked about that. We've given an example of another one. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing to look for is a caregiver who is really over attentive to the child and really willing to comply with healthcare workers, at least on a superficial level. And then a dead giveaway also is a caregiver who is a nurse or who works in the healthcare field. I wish we had more specific examples of this. If we are our nurse listeners out there, if you know of any place you can point us, that would be great. I would love to know from medical staff, if they have kind of a checklist, if they start suspecting that is based on research and maybe risk factors where they can kind of run down this list and say like, ooh, maybe this is, you, you know, when you like get a gut feeling about something, but you it's hard so. to sort of back it up. Yeah. Like, is there some sort of rubric that they have to go, okay, this gives me a little bit more ammo to feel comfortable making a call to DCFS or whatever. That I would love to know that. Or at too. least to lay a groundwork for the next time they come in. You know, if right. it's like multiple, but that then that's the problem too, is like even... Like in emergency services, nurses are working shifts and then they switch over and do the notes right. get, hopefully, you know, they do a good job at really working towards getting the notes to transfer over. But is that happening? And then if the parent's up and moving to different locations, I think that's where it gets difficult. Sure. So how would you diagnose this? Because the people with Munchausen are going to lie about what they're doing. The people with Munchausen by proxy are going to lie about what they're doing. And they're going to continue to deny what they're done. They've 
and they're going to continue to deny what they've done even after they've been discovered. Interestingly enough, though, the men tend to fess up more than the women do. Really? Yes. Because even though, like we've said, people get to the same criminal act, it is many times from different psych motivators. And clearly here between the men and the women, there's a big difference. And I'll drill down into that a little bit later. So doctors first want to rule out any actual mental or physical illnesses, like you were saying. Medical is always going to trump mental health. Let's make sure this parent is actually not sick or they are sick. Maybe that would explain some of the behaviors, but then they can use a variety of tests and procedures to determine whether they can make a Munchausen diagnosis. Once again, Munchausen is not the diagnosis. Factitious disorder is the diagnosis. So what motivates the person? They want to be a hero. They could be replaying unaddressed childhood traumas that were never resolved. Usually what it falls under is a desperate need for attention Mm -hmm. and an ability to step into that hero, martyr, victim role where they get a lot of positive validation. You're such a good mom. You're such a good dad. You're doing all this to take care of your poor child. Aren't you a good person? And bask in that. That becomes like almost like sort of vampiric, how they pull in the energy to sustain themselves. I think that's how they get the energy, like you were saying, where do they get all the energy to do all this work is because they're getting this constant adulation and admiration from the medical staff. And if you're a person with chronic low self-esteem and don't have any other way to work on that or channel it into something good, this is, it's, it's cyclical. It's just going to keep feeding that low self-esteem. It's like, well, I am really good at taking care of this child. So they have to stay sick forever because then what? Who am I if I don't have this right. child? Right. And look, there's a lot that can contribute to that in a really twisted way. Our culture really tries to drill into women's heads that, you know, you're not really fully a woman unless you're a parent, which in the, like God. there's a lot of yeah. literature about that, that I, thankfully that, you know, it's okay not to have kids, but our culture for years and years and years or thousands of years as us, you know, trying to survive all the challenges in human life. It's like, Oh, you've got to procreate. You got to procreate. That's a burden we put on people a lot. Yes. So there was a case in Alabama, uh, Lacey Garrett and that case where she did cause the death of her child. She's serving, I believe a life sentence and the, evaluators there really wanted to try and make a connection to her Munchausen by proxy being part of her severe postpartum depression. Interesting. So that's another layer of it that can be part of that, at least maybe not the diagnosis, but like a, a comorbid diagnosis, which we, you know, a, a diagnosis that goes along with another diagnosis. So what about men, men and Munchausen by proxy? Right. So. Once again, as with women, uh, there can be the combination of the hero-martyr archetype that is being chased through this. And what we found in this great research article was 15 case studies that were all compared. And there's a lot of common data that comes out of it. So the symptoms, like one of the things that happened is that the fathers tended to be a bit sloppier 
than the moms. They weren't quite as good as getting at getting away with it as the moms were. So they were able to be observed. Two of the fathers were observed by staff in the hospital smothering their child. And then another two were observed by closed circuit television when they didn't know when they thought they were in a private area. Oh, so that's why they're fessing up. Because <laughs> if you can't prove it, I could see the moms going, it's your word against mine. Right. While there were two cases of the children with male perpetrators being poisoned, the majority of them were victims of smothering. So smothering, reduction of air to the point where the child passes out so that the father can resuscitate them. And in one, a father had uh, learned how to induce seizures in his child. So he would, there was an underlying seizure disorder and the father was inducing them in order to get more attention. So what does the male perp look like in terms of sort of what we would casually call a profile? It's extremely rare for the father to be actively involved in the abuse. As we've said, it's primarily the mom. There are almost no cases at all where the parents are in sort of a foley adu Munchausen where they're both perpetrating on the child. It's either the mom or the dad. What is very clear in the examples that this research shows is that when the men were married, Generally, they were married to a partner who was extremely passive and in some cases even developmentally disordered or otherwise disabled. Ooh, so someone okay. that's not going to notice this being done, someone who's not going to push back, or someone who might be even in a position of being too afraid to say anything. Right. And someone who... Never mind. I'm not going to go there. Cut okay. <laughs> So it's not certain that men with Munchausen are more dangerous to kids than women with the syndrome, but on rare occasions, they have been known to harm children other than their own. So looking at the span of people in this study, it was average intelligence to above average intelligence in the men. All of them had normal schools, so there was no special education. Uh, Two of them had received further education and gone on for like higher level of education, like a master's or a doctorate. One was in regular employment in the armed services, but was currently on sick leave. However, none of the others in this study of the 15 perpetrators of Munchausen by proxy were in regular employment or had been in long-term employment before. I told you, it's their full-time job to keep their kids sick. Right. It's what they're doing. Wow. Right. I found that really interesting. Five of them were receiving a disability allowance. Six had gotten... uh, Evaluations by psychiatrists in the past who had not identified any mental illness, but had commented on features in all of these people as hypochondriacal natures, aggressive personalities, hysterical amnesia, and neurotic panic attacks, along with personality disorder, having schizoid features. Oh, that is a hodgepodge of a bunch of different things. Right. Which we're seeing, like these men are presenting with a history of a lot of random psychiatric disorders. Right. And all of them had displayed features of Munchausen syndrome or somaticizing disorder. So all Mm -hmm. of them had a history, which is interesting because they didn't have much of a work history. So they had been probably identifying as sick or disabled prior to moving into this role. With women, it was also common to find that bouts of personal false illness behaviors had gone into remission 
at the time that they were inventing or causing fake illnesses for their child. So they've been doing this big hub to do about themselves being ill. And then once they find a child to project it on, their symptoms sort of fall into the background. And then the minute the child either gets well or dies, oh gosh, their symptoms come back. And there were cases where they had been responsible for their children's death. So all except for two fathers were living with their partners. The length of the partnership median was 16 months, less than three years in all except five of the examples. Um, four of the fathers had been in, married for at least, you know, what we consider long relationships. So we have a little bit of a span there within those 15, but predominantly it's like a history of unstable relationships or short-term relationships. And unstable work history. I'm telling you, those are like the two markers to so many things having to do with, is somebody going to reoffend with criminal acts <laughs> and or you know some of these psych- psychiatric disorders that really kind of toe the line of being criminal with the actions right. that they're taking so it's so interesting so i mean that was the other thing we've talked about this before about it's fascinating in most law enforcement agencies you have to jump through the psych hoops, at least in the big cities. I mean, there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through. And one of the things that will knock you out of all consideration for law enforcement is not having history of a long-term relationship. If you don't have a history of a long-term relationship, that's a big marker. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who doesn't have a long-term relationship has, you know, a personality disorder. But like you were saying, on that rubric, it's something that does look very significant. Sincerely, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.